2020 was a very interesting year in gaming. It was a year in which we were going to say hello to shiny brand new next generation consoles and goodbye to our trusty 8th generation consoles that lasted for a long, long time. It was a generation where I personally grew as a gamer more than ever before, for better or worse. Gone were the days of the past where looking at the back of a game case at my local game store or watching a short 4 minute video on YouTube was all I needed to stay up to date and make informed buying decisions. And in came an era where daily doses of Reddit, Twitter, Resetera, watching independent content creators on YouTube, or listening to video game podcasts fueled my brain with biological terabytes of video game news and information. I knew all of the games coming down the pipe in 2020. I knew all of the rumors and I knew all of the hot takes. This allowed me to almost always be in a constant state of hype knowing what was coming around the corner as there is always something to be excited about in this amazing hobby that we all love. But it comes at a cost and that cost is that I'm almost never surprised and I'm talking about the good kind of surprised like when it's February 23rd, 2010, and you go to work at your local electronics store, and you see a new game release on the shelf, and you take a flyer on it. It's a new game that you've never heard of. It's from a developer you've never heard of. But it's only $20 at launch, and it's a survival horror game, so you know it's going to be fun. And that game turns out to be Deadly Premonition on Xbox 360, and it's one of the best games that you've played all year. That's a true story, by the way. I did work at an electronics retailer. I did notice Deadly Premonition on the shelf the day it came out. Our store only had one copy of it, and I bought it because it was $20. And that game's amazing. Nothing quite personifies this lack of surprise like the beginning of this past year, 2020. On January 1st, 2020, I already had the whole year mapped out. I knew that Ori and the Will of the Wisps was going to be a mesmerizing artistic tour de force. I knew Final Fantasy VII Remake was going to be the first Final Fantasy game I ever dove headfirst into and probably was going to love. I knew Ghost of Tsushima was going to be a hit from Sony. I knew Animal Crossing was going to sell like hotcakes. I knew Valve was going to set the standard for VR with Half-Life Alex, And I knew The Last of Us 2, Doom Eternal, and Cyberpunk were going to be my Game of the Year contenders. And that Halo Infinite would be the only thing I played that fall. Okay, not everything was set in stone, but you get the point. A lot of those predictions were pretty accurate, and a lot of them came through. I also knew that Ubisoft Quebec was making a game called Gods and Monsters. I eventually knew its name strangely changed to Immortals Phoenix Rising. But I kind of viewed it as Assassin's Creed for kids. I didn't really pay too much attention to it, and according to the general reception of its reveal, I was not really alone in that train of thought. Fast forward a few months, and these next-gen consoles start to roll out. I got my hands on my Xbox Series X on day one. I found myself becoming addicted to jumping in and out of as many enhanced games as I could. Everything being 60 frames per second was incredible being a console pleb for so many years and not really having a PC that was capable of, of running those games. It was so incredible that in December of that year when Immortals Phoenix Rising, this Assassin's Creed for kids game surprisingly, had already been discounted for Black Friday weekend. And 
I was so addicted to jumping into these new games and just seeing games running well on my new console that I bought it because it was on sale, why not? My plan was to just install it, run around the world for a few hours, and then hope that maybe in a couple years, when my daughter's a bit older, she might get a kick out of it or something like that. And hey, it's Greek mythology. Greek mythology's cool. I mean, why not? All the stars basically aligned, and I just made an impulse buy. Well, I'm here to tell you that even though I thought I had this whole year mapped out, I thought I knew where all the best gaming experiences were going to come from in 2020, there was room for just one surprise. My decision to spontaneously buy Immortals Phoenix Rising was one of the best gaming impulse buys I've ever had since that fateful day back in 2010. Ladies and gentlemen, please allow me to tell you all what I love about Immortals Phoenix Rising. There are a lot of reasons why I really enjoyed my time with Immortals Phoenix Rising, but it only makes sense to start with what you just heard and what everyone who plays will immediately be inundated with when they hit the start screen and the wonderful track Heart of a Hero starts to play. Ubisoft is no slouch when it comes to scoring their games. I remember being so obsessed with the track Ruthless Reprise by Amon Tobin from the Chaos Theory soundtrack that I ripped it to my original Xbox console and played it as the background music in almost every game that allowed for custom soundtracks. Dan Romer's fantastic work on Far Cry 5 really is what made that rendition of a modern day Montana gone wrong come together. The track now that this old world is ending brings such a thematic serenity to that world it's just really really great work the assassin's creed theme song is very well recognized as one of the few tracks in gaming where listening to it as a fan of the series completely prevents your brain from being able to process the audio and instead it just puts your mind directly into that world that you love playing with so much a similar effect to what the Halo theme has if you're a Halo fan. And you know what I'm talking about. It's that feeling when you hear... And instead of hearing the instruments in the song, you just see Master Chief driving a warthog through an exploding pillar of autumn. The Assassin's Creed theme song is made even greater by how they are able to mold it from game to game, matching each game's iterations, themes, and locale together. 
The point is, Ubisoft knows what it's doing when it comes to creating memorable music for their franchises, and at the dawn of a new IP heading straight into a new generation of consoles, this endeavor is as important as ever. Which is likely why the leads on Immortals Phoenix Rising selected Gareth Coker to compose the original soundtrack, a composer who is, in my opinion, in the middle of an incredible ascension to the Gaming Music Hall of Fame after having breakout success crafting the main theme for Ark Survival Evolved, he has since built the utterly majestic music in Ori and the Blind Forest, as well as Ori and the Will of the Wisps, and all the way up to helming one of gaming's most beloved franchises. One that's theme music you just heard briefly, one that even non-fans of the series have likely hummed in the shower at some point, and that's Halo Infinite. His style is very unique, and throughout the years he has carved his own signature sound that has recognizable threads through all of his major works, but always add up to a unique and breathtaking composition within each game that he's featured. Take the song I used in the introduction, for example, Heart of a Hero, the title track for Immortals Phoenix Rising. If you played the game, I'm 100% sure you recognize that song as its main theme, and I'm willing to bet you enjoyed it when it came on in the game. Now, I'm going to play that song again, but this time I want you to close your eyes. Unless you're driving, then don't close your eyes. Keep, keep your eyes on the road. There are three parts to this sequence. The build-up, the bridge, and the crescendo. I apologize if those aren't the correct terms, but I think you know what I mean. I'm not a music major or anything. For the build-up, I want you to picture Ori running through the blind forest. For the bridge, I want you to think of Master Chief heading into battle. And then finally, in the crescendo, I want you to picture Phoenix gliding through the air. If my theory is correct, all three of those games fit perfectly into that awesome sequence of music, but yet at the onset of this podcast, you never once questioned that theme song as being anything but the theme from Immortals Phoenix Rising. That, my friends, is what a brilliant ascending composer honing his own signature sound brings to the table. But aside from Garrus' immense talents as a composer, the pairing was much more obvious to the creators and creatives at Ubisoft Quebec. In an interview with Comic Book Resources, Gareth revealed that in early builds of the game, Ubisoft used the Minecraft Greek Mythology music pack as a placeholder for the game's in-game music, a pack of music uh, or an arrangement of music 
that conveniently contains the theme songs for Ares and Aphrodite that were used within the Minecraft expansion and other characters that are featured in Immortals Phoenix Rising and of course was recorded and, and written by Gareth Coker. The team at Ubisoft was so impressed by how well that music fit right into the world that they were in the middle of building that they knew there was no other option but to collaborate with that PAX creator. In the same interview, Gareth Coker was asked what it was like working with one of the largest AAA studios in the world compared to working with Moon Studios, the people that brought you Ori and the Will of the Wisps and Ori and the Blind Forest, them being a much smaller indie studio that is actually comprised of its entire staff working remotely from around the world. And he said, there are definitely advantages and disadvantages. I think Things can generally just take a bit longer, but in the case of Ubisoft, I got more access than I expected for a AAA game. Normally, the security is pretty high for big releases. They don't want to give you too much. Whereas on Ori, they gave me literally everything I could ever want, sometimes even too much. Every piece of concept art, every animation, I can basically see the game being made in real time. Ubisoft also gave me a lot of stuff, but it was always only the stuff I really needed. One of the cool things about game development in this decade and onwards is we're all moving to the cloud. It makes it easier than ever to test the game in real time while it's being worked on. Before, you'd have a lot of big companies be extremely hesitant to upload a build of the game to some random website or FTP because of the potential of being hacked. It's a lot harder to hack the cloud stuff. It's easier now to look at a game, play it, test it while you're working on it, which always leads to a more unified result. That's the thing I've been going on about for years. Getting composers involved early and giving them some emotional equity in the game at an early stage because it actually helps later on." End quote. First of all, the stuff about it being a lot harder to hack in the cloud is a little ironic because the developers actually used Google Stadia to share builds of the game, debug, develop remotely during the pandemic and stuff like that. It was used a lot for QA if I recall, but someone hit the wrong button somewhere along the line and an early build of the game was actually uh, playable to Stadia members unintentionally, which was, uh, it made the rounds in the, in the news, let's just say. But the main takeaway from that quote is that Gareth was allowed to be part of the development from an early stage. He grew his music in parallel to the team building the world and its characters and most importantly was able to form that emotional equity mentioned resulting in the music fitting the world, its themes, its characters and its story like a glove and it's one of my favorite parts of Immortals Phoenix Rising. Immortals Phoenix Rising is a Ubisoft open-world action RPG, a style of game so prevalent it's formed its own subgenre, commonly just referred to as a Ubisoft game. Depending on who you are though, that may or may not immediately be seen as a positive. As there are some people who have played one too many giant Ubisoft open worlds, with maps full to the rim of different points of interest and little icons. 
directing you to climb towers, raid bandit camps, and solve puzzles. But there's also a lot of people like me who find that somewhat cathartic as long as there's a strong narrative and cool characters to fall back on. The Ubisoft formula of game design is one that is ingrained in all of their games, for better or worse, because it just works. Sure, it might be a bit bloated and sometimes feel repetitive, but these games have so many sequels and so many iterations with so many crazy fans. Because the system works. It's not for everybody, but the system just works. But what if we could take that formula and concoct one that has a broader appeal, one that's just not there to appease the Assassin's Creed diehards or the people that love Far Cry. What if we trim the fat, isolate what makes it great, and have the purest, most precise, Walter White approved dose of that open world Ubisoft action RPG that we've ever seen? They will never say it out loud, but I'm 100% sure that the people at Ubisoft Quebec asked themselves that same question, and they answered that with Immortals Phoenix Rising. My tale begins at sea. A ship of soldiers returning from a faraway battle. Their victory ambushed by an unexpected storm. The sea tossed and turned. Waves churned to a throne. The line between sky and sea all but vanished. The mountainous peaks of the waves descended into valleys nearly as deep as Tartarus. One of the first things that's abundantly clear when you hop into the world of Immortals Phoenix Rising is that this is not your typical Ubisoft experience. In the game you play as a mortal named Phoenix, a soldier who survived a shipwreck and washes ashore on an unknown island, only to find out that the entire crew has been frozen and stoned, one of which is actually his own brother. You soon find out that the evil Typhon, famed villain of the gods, has stolen the essence of Zeus's children, Aphrodite, Ares, Athena, and Hephaestus, and it's up to you to find a way to get them back as the gods are not themselves without their essences, and are no match for Typhon who aims to take over Olympus in their stead. Well, the story at its surface, on a surface level, might not jump out as being super unique, or new, and but what sets it apart from a lot of games is its tone. It trades in the serious, brooding adventure you might see in an Assassin's Creed game for the light-hearted, joke-filled adventure you might find in a Disney Pixar film. In fact, the whole game feels like one long season of a Disney show. Sure, that means there are jokes and humor aplenty, which may not be everybody's cup of tea, it could turn some people off, but there are still underlying narrative threads about the regrets of a father, imposter syndrome, the feeling of inferiority younger siblings might feel. Those serious emotional threads are still there to underpin the tried and true hero's journey that you would expect from a Disney film. 
and those threads really kept me engaged as I progressed through the story. The game's director, Scott Phillips, talked about the decision to build the world in this way in an interview with Game, Game Rant, and in it he said, I think it felt natural to try something different. Coming off of Assassin's Creed Odyssey, we wanted to aim for a wider audience. We wanted to be a little bit more accepting and welcoming and attractive to a wider audience. And so the tone comes through in the narrative, obviously, but the tone also comes through in some of the animations and some of the way you upgrade things. The best terminology I've heard or the best description of Immortals is ancient Greek guardians of the galaxy where we wanted the light-hearted interpersonal feeling but then the stakes are still epic and legendary and the end of the universe could still happen. So it's a mixture of those two things. Well, it is a drastic change from what you'd expect from an Assassin's Creed game or any Ubisoft game for that matter, Ghost Recon, Far Cry, etc. The developers really nailed their goal and I think these characters and this world will absolutely appeal to a larger audience. It certainly appealed to me, and in more ways than one, as the world itself is a huge departure from what you would expect in Assassin's Creed Origins or Assassin's Creed Odyssey, for example. And just a side note, I'm going to mention Assassin's Creed Odyssey a lot because this game is actually made by the people that made Assassin's Creed Odyssey, and the entire concept of this game was sparked by a bug that was found during the development of Assassin's Creed Odyssey. The developer said that there was a bug uh, that caused all of the character models to kind of have their faces mutated where their eyes got combined into one and everybody in the game became a cyclops and that kind of sparked a little bit of a creative spark within the game's director which kind of led him down the path of, of going deeper and deeper into Greek mythology which eventually led to the creation or the pitch I should say for Immortals Phoenix Rising or at that time Gods and Monsters which is a kind of a, a neat tidbit but let's get back to the world itself. In a game like Assassin's Creed Origins, for example, their version of Egypt that they created was a massive, beautiful place. At the time of its release, it was one of the first games I played on my brand new Xbox One X, and I was very impressed by what I saw. But once I left Siwa, which is the game's starting town, the rest of the map kind of blended together in my head. And I found myself a lot of the time just hopping on my horse and riding to the next waypoint, never really taking the time to explore or take in the world that they created around Bayek. The benefit of an open world game is clearly the size and scope of the sandbox, but it's not enough to just present the player with a big sandbox. They need to want to explore in the sand. But a player is only going to want to explore if it's a rewarding experience, both literally and figuratively. A lot of the concern by non-hardcore fans of the Assassin's Creed games, especially the newer ones, is that yes, the world is massive and beautiful, but everything has a similar look and I can only climb so many towers or raid so many camps before the monotony sets in and I just don't feel rewarded. And a lot of people will tend to just mainline the campaign just to see the story through. Immortal's solution to this problem was to shrink the land of the gods into a more dense world that is bursting with color and things to do. Interesting reasons to walk in any direction. The Hall of the Gods represents your home base, so to speak, 
It's nestled atop a cliff in the Valley of Eternal Springs, one of the first biomes that you visit in the game. It's an area where you will level up your character, chat with some of your companions you make along the way, but every time you visit this place, you will get this incredible view of the game's world. Each zone a new biome with a new color palette. In the center of all of this is the Ghastly Mountain housing the gates of Tartarus, the home of the game's main antagonist, Typhon. When asked about creating this world, Ubisoft Quebec producer Mark Alexis Cote said this, Our world was built on the same philosophies as a theme park, creating strong, iconic thematizations of all regions and biomes each region inspired by a Greek god and everything in that region is specifically built to support the mythology of that god. From the scarred battlefields of Ares, the god of war, to the lush paradise lands of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, players will incur encounter a huge and detailed world to explore. The land of the gods is full of varied terrain, monsters, and challenges. The team at Ubisoft accomplished this with flying colors in my opinion. What you see when you gaze into the distance on the edge of the cliff at the Hall of the Gods looks like a map of Disneyland come to life and you get that feeling like you could fly in any direction and discover something worth doing. Combine that with the game's incredible draw distance, it's a sight that I often found myself stopping to take in every time I return to the hall, which throughout a 30-hour playthrough is quite often. So, as you stare off into the distance and finally take that leap off of the tower at the Hall of the Gods, what happens next? Well, that's where the fun begins. Phoenix had never been allowed to hold the Hallowed Sword, a gift from Achilles for bravery in battle. It balanced perfectly in his palm, as if forged for it. Achilles' sword? Brother must have been good in battle. The same way this game trades in Assassin's Creed's vast, hyper-realized, beautiful, true-to-life world that can sometimes be a little daunting for a more lush, stylized world that's just begging to be explored, the gameplay in Immortals Phoenix Rising is where we start to see that pure and precise version of the Ubisoft formula really start to take shape. There are three main pillars to the gameplay, combat, exploration, and puzzle solving. The combat is easy to learn, but hard to master. You have a sword for light attacks, which refill your stamina gauge, used to fuel your godly powers that are unlocked as you help the fallen gods in, their, in the campaign. You have an axe that's much slower but deals more damage and fills up a stagger meter on your enemies, which when filled, puts them in a stunned state where you can unload your most devastating attack combinations. For defense, you have a roll, a dodge, a double jump, parry, gliding, blocking, 
Something that really shines thanks to the game's expert use of animation cancelling, allowing you to instantly swap to a different tactic when you notice an enemy telegraphing an attack without having to finish the animation that you're currently in. It really makes the combat a lot smoother. Aside from the silky smooth overall performance of the game on the Series X, this animation cancelling is what really ties the combat together to keep it fresh and interesting throughout the whole playthrough as the enemies you fight are extremely varied offering unique challenges to overcome and constantly appearing in different combinations and compositions. It always keeps you on your toes. The game's combat relies heavily on skill and very little on level gating or power level which has been common in a lot of games leading up to Immortals Phoenix Rising. You can go and fight some of the game's toughest world bosses right away even without some of the tools and upgrades you get later on and you can take them down if you have enough mastery over the game's combat mechanics. This kind of freedom in an open world is becoming increasingly rare these days. A lot of the times you find yourself on a guided path through an open world which is a little oxymoronic. Before I talk about the exploration though, I just want to address the Breath of the Wild sized elephant in the room, as it's going to start sticking out more and more the further I go on. Yes, this game borrows heavily from Breath of the Wild, especially when it comes to exploration and puzzle solving, but this is the nature of creative works. Not every piece of art is an innovation. Sometimes art is an iteration. And I think if you play both games, you will absolutely notice the similarities, but you will also see the vast differences. This is not a Breath of the Wild clone, just as much as Breath of the Wild is not a clone of The Witcher 3. For me, Breath of the Wild never managed to suck me in as I felt the world was empty feeling and, and a little bland and despite the wonderful ambience and music and puzzles I never found myself getting invested enough in the story and the characters to really just get sucked into the game and thus I've actually never finished it. Immortals in my opinion though, an opinion I fully understand is a minority opinion, is able to bridge those gaps that prevented me from really coming to grips with Breath of the Wild and I personally never wanted to walk away from this game until the credits rolled. Great, now that that's out of the way, let's talk about exploration. Just like the combat is afforded an extremely satisfying fluidity thanks to fantastic animations and animation cancelling, traversal is also a beneficiary. Exploration in this game is something that never got old to me the entire time I played through. The act of sprinting and then holding down Y to instantly mount a horse, to increase your speed as you run to the edge of a cliff where you can jump off and instantly spread your wings and start gliding down the mountainside is something that continued to feel as good as it just sounded for the entirety of my playthrough. What really is the key to exploration though? is uh, addition by subtraction. A common mechanic that you see in most games nowadays is a way to scan the environment and have kind of like a sonar shoot out from your character 
instantly revealing everything around you that you can interact with. This is something that's very commonly used in the previous Assassin's Creed game. It's very prevalent in, in Tomb Raider, for example. And while this is a useful tool, it also takes a lot of the fun out of exploring. Imagine going to an escape room and then just clicking in your metaphorical thumbstick only for the way out of the room to start glowing without you having to do any deduction yourself. It's not that fun. In Immortals Phoenix Rising, you can scan your environment to find a point of interest and or you can stumble upon them like I mentioned before. The world is designed to facilitate this. But once you get to that point of interest or puzzle or whatever you stumble upon, you need to actually use your eyes and understanding of the game to solve those puzzles. Something which unexpectedly became my favorite part of the game. It's something that's honestly not that common in today's game, in modern games. A lot of times you have that breadcrumb to follow, you have that glowing switch on the wall. It's really easy to just turn off your brain and, and kind of disengage and just follow through with the paces. And that's not the thing in this game. It, it trusts your competence. The game trusts that you're smart enough to solve these puzzles. And it makes you feel so much better when you do. Speaking of puzzles, puzzles in video games are often thrown in as a change of pace or to some people kind of a roadblock to the fun. The puzzles you'll experience in Immortals Phoenix Rising though do an incredible job of walking the line between just being challenging enough but never so obtuse where you're stuck and you end up looking up guides. You will come across them in the open world or in the vaults of Tartarus, the latter of which is the single most Breath of the Wild-y part of the game. What's really interesting in every puzzle is that it's solved strictly and only through standard gameplay mechanics, not special unique rules that are specifically created for that individual puzzle. Now you might be thinking that it's probably a good thing to have a puzzle be finely tuned and crafted so that it has a very specific intricate solution like that sounds on paper like it would be a good idea but why it's so clever and so awesome that every single puzzle solution revolves around some kind of combination of the gameplay mechanics that you just use for everything else in the game uh, is probably very prevalent in this example i'm about to give so for example, a common puzzle in the game involves having kind of pressure plates that you need to put weights on to open a door which will contain a chest that has your loot in it, right? Pretty self-explanatory. In the general area of where the puzzle is, you'll see these blocks that are clearly indicated to be what you're supposed to use to put on the plates. The blocks are generally going to be locked away that require some use of the gameplay mechanics to open the door that they're stuck in so that you can then use them to put on the plates and thus solve the puzzle. So in short, you need to find a way to access these specifically placed cubes to put on the pressure plates to open the door. Pretty standard, right? Except you can pick up other things other than the cubes. Everything in the world that's not tied down, you can pick up. Like if you cut down a tree, for example, you can pick up the log that, that, that the tree leaves behind because it's not bolted down to the ground. And trees have weight, just like those crates have weight. 
So what's stopping you from walking away from the puzzle entirely, finding a forest, cutting down a shitload of trees, and bringing them all back to where the puzzle is, and just putting a bunch of chopped up trees on those plates to open the treasure chest? Nothing's stopping you from doing that. Because all of the game's puzzles are all solved using standard gameplay mechanics. The trees have weight, the boxes have weight, so thus you can cut down a bunch of trees and skip <laughs> the hard part of that puzzle entirely. I know this because I did this multiple times, and every single time I did that, as stupid as it looked carrying all those trees across the map, I felt like a genius. And that's the type of feeling that can only happen when the game allows you to think outside of the box and find your own solutions to things without having a very strict path to the solution. And that's part of the reason why the puzzles were one of my favorite parts of the game. But there are two things that really, really push these puzzles over the top for me. And are a testament to the level of effort that's put into these this game and that's the game's two narrators i know i should have mentioned this in the previous section when i talked about the story and whatnot but this game's entire story is narrated by zeus and prometheus every new story beat you come across they will chime in and provide context and humor but as you carry on and unveil more of the story you really start to find out more about zeus and prometheus and their interesting relationship with each other and their character arc is one of the most fascinating ones in the entire game but they don't just provide context and story beats for your main adventure they also do the same for many of the puzzles Almost all of the puzzles you'll find in the world are tied directly to Greek lore and mythology. Whether it's solving a fresco puzzle of Adonis while Zeus and Prometheus narrate the story of Adonis and the boar, or rolling a pearl through a maze to end up in a clamshell while you hear the story of the birth of Aphrodite. I personally love this as it reminded me of Mimir, the character that you carry with you through most of the God of War campaign. It just adds so much context to the world and even though the stories are told in a very Disney-esque way, injecting a ton of humor, they are actually very accurate to real Greek mythology which I always found very interesting throughout my entire life. If I could make just one request though, I would love to have these tales transcribed and accessible from a menu somewhere as I always loved reading more into the mythos of all of the histories and the settings of the previous Assassin's Creed games and it's just not accessible here. They Once they say their, their story, that's kind of the only opportunity that you have to hear it which is a little bit of a shame. I would have loved to be able to uh, go back to that. On their own, each of these three gameplay pillars are pretty basic concepts that you will find in most action RPGs, but the secret sauce that makes Immortal so good is how meticulous the developers were when it came to organically connecting them, creating this extremely satisfying gameplay loop that just feels very incredible to play. Whether it's the godly power, Athena's dash that lets you charge forward quickly closing the gap and stunning enemies, but you can also use that to reach those just out of reach secret chests in a vault of Tartarus. Or Apollo's arrows, which slow down the world around you and let you control the arrow's flight. You see that mechanic in other Assassin's Creed games. It's used to solve puzzles typically where you have to shoot an arrow through a series of rings but it can also be used to scout for solutions to other puzzles as you can shoot the arrows in a lot of places that you can't physically stand. Or you can use it to slow down time in a combat 
scenario to get a reading on what type of enemy groups are surrounding you. Or you can use it to place a perfectly placed headshot in the center of the eyeball of that charging Cyclops, the iconic enemy that graces the cover of the game, the real reason why this game exists in the first place. All of those combat mechanics, all of those exploration mechanics, they all meld together seamlessly through expert use of animation that is just a joy to play. And on top of that, this is an RPG, so you're constantly leveling up your abilities, constantly leveling up your skills that spread out and provide you with even more utility, like increasing the distance of that Athena's charge, or providing you with a movement slow when you're shooting in midair to help you line up that killer shot. Not to mention the gear in the game. New pieces of gear are typically what you're awarded with when you complete quests and solve puzzles, but it's nothing like what you've come to expect from gear in the recent Assassin's Creed games. They take the less is more approach here. Every single piece of gear in the game is unique and has a meaningful, impactful perk that allows you to adjust your build in diverse ways. You never scrap your gear, you never sell your gear. You use it to construct your character in whatever way best reflects how you want to play. You're not constantly churning out the same piece of gear over and over just with better stats. Every piece of gear is meaningful and they all can impact your build in different ways. For instance, one of the builds that I used for through the majority of my playthrough was I had a bow and arrow that allowed me to stun or freeze an enemy with a headshot and then I had an armor piece that every time I staggered an enemy it refilled a health chunk in my health bar because I was constantly taking damage and having a hard time dealing with bigger threats while getting swarmed with smaller threats I was able to use that bow to freeze the bigger threat and use my axe to cleave down smaller mobs which in turn refilled my health and then once they were dealt with I was able to go in and take care of the bigger threat Somebody else may have a completely different playstyle that's unlocked by different combinations of gear and different combinations of skill. There is a lot of depth to the gearing system without having to constantly be chucking new pieces of gear at you all the time. Every time you unlock a new piece, it's worth checking out and worth trying out, which is a very, very, very rewarding experience. So bringing it all together, when you're standing at the top of the Hall of the Gods, you jump off that tower, swoop down towards whatever attraction in this theme park you feel like checking out, landing right into a pack of enemies as you fall, you launch an Apollo arrow that you guide directly into the eye of a Cyclops who's standing next to a puzzle, you use your glove of Heracles to pick up the box that's meant to be used to solve the puzzle, and instead you throw that at the Cyclops, stunning it, and then you head directly in for the kill. This sequence of events and many, many variants on this you will surely take part in during your time with Immortals Phoenix Rising and I promise you it never gets old. The game just works.
Well, that's the end of Phoenix. Perfectly passable storytelling. I won't lie, there were moments that dragged, but you really got me with that ending. Now, let's settle up. Time for you to help me against Typhon. It's not over yet. Not by a long shot. I think it's also worth mentioning very quickly the DLC that's in the game, as they have really interesting approach to it. I personally felt very satiated as the credits rolled in the main game. I never felt like it was too short, but I also never felt like it was too bloated. It was kind of the perfect length. But I kind of thought that if the DLC was just more of the same, a continuation of the main game, I could end up reaching that bloated territory that a lot of people have issues with with some of the recent Assassin's Creed games. But with the DLC, they're offering completely new experiences. The final DLC that's yet to come out is a top-down isometric game starring a new hero set in the same world, and the most recent DLC called Myths of the Eastern Realm is also a completely new hero and a completely new mythology as the game tackles uh, Asian mythology. I hope this is a sign of things to come as this is definitely a franchise I would like to see grow and taking on other mythologies would be very, very interesting. All in all, the game accomplishes with flying colors what I believe the developers sought out to do, which is to isolate that core strain of that patented Ubisoft formula and use that to cultivate the best world to ever come out of a Ubisoft game. Which is very high praise because what they have released in the past was already some of the best in the business. The team at Ubisoft Quebec should be extremely proud of what they accomplish here. They released a brand new IP that runs perfectly on a brand new generation of hardware during a global pandemic and set the standard of what a Ubisoft open world game in the future will be held against for a long, long time. Bravo, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for listening to my first ever episode of What I Love About on the Game Positive Podcast. A lot of work went into writing this. I think the script is a thousand something words, which is kind of a lot, especially since I never wrote scripts for any of my other videos. I really hope that it paid off in some way. I look forward to talking about more games in this series in the future. So please let me know if there's any games you would like to see covered. This type of content is not all you can expect from the podcast though, as there are several new types of shows being written as we speak. Check out my podcast reset trailer episode that released yesterday where I go over all of the different types of content that you can expect to see in the future. Thanks again everybody, remember to have fun out there, and I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>